Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week we're discussing space and satellite technology, the potential for UK industry to succeed in this high-tech marketplace, and the government's recently published UK space strategy. With me to discuss that is Professor Sir Martin Sweeting, founder and executive chairman of Surrey Satellite Technology Limited. Sir Martin Sweeting, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gavin. It's a great pleasure to be here and I look forward to it. So before we look at the space sector as a whole in the UK, maybe we can start with a brief pen picture of Surrey Satellite Technology Limited or SSTL, who you are and what you do. Yes, yeah, certainly. Well, um, SSTL started way, way back in the Jurassic period of uh, around about 1980, 1981 to 1985, which was a spin out from a university research group, uh, which had been studying whether it was possible to build small satellites using commercial off the shelf components and, and in that way reduce the cost, the time scale uh, and complexity of testing and launch. And uh, after launching their first uh, two satellites, uh, it seemed that the next way forward was to see whether there was a commercial market for it. And so SSTL was formed in 1985. Um, it's grown since that time organically. So we, un unlike today's uh, sort of fashion, uh, there, there wasn't a great, there wasn't any venture capital uh, in, involved in that. So the company grew gradually, organically, and uh, now has reached a, a total of about 400 people. And SSTL is essentially uh, designs, builds, launches, and operates uh, small satellites. So it's a sort of vertically integrated capability, sort of end-to-end -end from research and design carried out in the university through to the commercialization and then the operation and launch of satellites of, of a whole range of different uh, applications, uh, earth observation, communications, uh, science, uh, and also providing training. And because we were launched out of, a, if you like, out of a university, we retain those close links. And so there's a very strong synergy between academic research and commercial exploitation. And so this combined process allows us to really try to do the sort of first of a kind uh, space missions for small satellites. And, and, and that's about it, really. Fantastic. It sounds like a really exciting place to work. And you've clearly been around the space sector, therefore, for a while. At the end of last month, the, the UK government published a new space strategy, um, which has a number of elements to it. The first pillar in that strategy is called unlocking growth in the UK space sector. So how would you describe the UK space technology industry at the moment? And, and how might some of the initiatives in that strategy help the industry? I think it's probably helpful to sort of cut it into two sectors, you know, pre the last couple of years, and then what's been happening very recently. So the UK has a very strong space science space uh, amongst all the universities and has contributed many uh, science missions through the European Space Agency and, and uh, NASA and other space agencies. And of course, it ha also has a substantial space industry, primarily focused around one or two of the sort of prime contractors, but with a uh, supply chain behind that, which supports it. And the UK space industry has been probably the strongest in satellite communications up to the sort of uh, recent period, uh, but also in uh, satellite applications in the last decade, focusing on earth observation applications and so forth. But to some extent, all of this has changed just in the last year or two, when 
the UK has, I think, finally realized that space is absolutely critical to our national uh, prosperity and well-being and and the ability to contribute to international programs. And that has changed uh, the flavor of space in the UK quite dramatically. And that's generating some real opportunities for, for the UK space industry to develop. And that's broadening the base of, of space companies. So we're seeing a significant number of space startups, which are entering the, the sort of space industry, if you like, in the, in the UK. And that's been encouraged because now there is, for the first time, I think, a an internal market in the UK for space, um, both in terms of applications and then hopefully before long for some national satellite programs. So, you know, space in the UK is actually surprisingly strong. When you look at it from overseas, people don't tend to think of the UK as being a major space player, but actually we have a very strong industry in science space that's been contributing to international programs for, for many years. Really interesting and, and interesting to hear the sort of the latest developments and how things are changing. Obviously, one other recent development and maybe not so positive is that the UK is no longer a member of the EU. And obviously that does affect some of the opportunities we have, such as participating in Galileo. But it remains a member of the European Space Agency, ESA, which, of course, is not an EU body. So how important is it for the UK space industry to be a member of ESA and, and how can the UK ensure it retains a strong voice in ESA even though we've left the European Union? Well, it's, it's really important that the UK remains a very active player within ESA. I suppose you can sort of separate out that ESA, uh, and this is very crude, but ESA is the space R&D organization for, for, for Europe and the European Union is increasingly becoming the operational side of, of space for Europe. So ESA is developing many of the new systems that should be later deployed through the European Union, but it's also a major international player in space science and exploration. And so the UK maintaining its, its role in ESA is critical because we want to be able to contribute to and benefit from the science programs that, that ESA carries out, whether they be earth science, looking back at our planet and understanding the impact of climate change and environmental issues, or whether it's looking out beyond the earth into space and participating in the international exploration programs of the other, other, other planets, asteroids and the like. And of course, in due course, exploration, when uh, we see the, I think now pretty well inevitable move to returning to the moon and having human habitation, prolonged human habitation on the moon. So you know, the UK needs to be part of this. It's, we can't do it alone. We don't have the budgets and we don't have the, the breadth of uh, capability. So we need to do this in partnership. ESA is going to be one of our major partners, not the only one, because we will have other links with other bi and multilateral programs with you know, the Japanese Space Agency, the Indian Space Agency, NASA and so on. But ESA is our neighbour and we get very, very good value in terms of our investments into that in space science in terms of the return and also, of course, by contributing to it, industry can then, that's UK industry, can play a part and benefit from you know, the work that goes on. And that stimulates UK industry and also helps generate new ideas. And that will keep our UK space industry fresh and, and, and active. So there's a whole range of things that you mentioned. Uh, you did 
mentioned return to the moon, and I know that SSTL have signed a major new contract with ESA fairly recently for a satellite called Lunar Pathfinder. So maybe you could just explain what, what is Lunar Pathfinder? How will it work? Let's step back a little bit because the, you know, the return to the moon is, a, is an interesting concept because originally, if you go back, I suppose, a decade or more now, people thought the moon was dead. It was dry and dead, and therefore there was not a particular reason to go back to it. There is, of course, scientific interest. But the discovery of water on the moon, of course, transforms that. And, and we were really pleased to be part of one of the very early missions with uh, one of the Chandrayaan Indian missions where we contributed to the development of the uh, radar instrument, which first detected water in the bottom of one of the craters, the presence of water. And then that stimulated a lot of interest to go look more closely. And of course, now we find there's substantial quantities of water in the moon, not in puddles, but you can extract it. That means that it's possible to sensibly and economically have prolonged human habitation on, on the moon and that the moon is a day trip away, more or less, whereas Mars is a six month uh, trip away. So it makes a whole heap of sense really to go to the moon and use that as the technological stepping stone towards the eventual uh, move to Mars, because we can check everything out on the moon. And as I say, it's a sort of day trip if it goes doesn't go as well as you would expect. Once you're going on the way to Mars, you're pretty well committed for, uh, for 12 months or more. So you want to get it right. So the moon is, is, is now actually a, a really important technological staging post and human habitation on the moon, once, uh, once we have astronauts on the surface, they're going to want to communicate back. We're going to want to have uh, little robotic rovers exploring you know, parts of the, uh, the lunar surface to make better use of uh, astronaut uh, time. And of course, we're going to want to know where they are and the astronauts themselves want to know where they are. So we're going to need essentially, if you like, a, a communication system, a Vodafone around the moon uh, or, and, a, and, a, and a Galileo or GPS around the moon in order to be able to navigate. And at the same time, hopefully there will be a considerable international participation, not only by the big players and the space superpowers, agencies and the like, but also universities and perhaps individual companies who will want to perhaps transport small payloads to orbit the moon for uh, science measurements, uh, to have small rovers on the surface to explore the, the lunar, lunar surface. And so they will need to communicate back. And so in order to provide a, a sort of internet around the moon and to provide navigation services around the moon in due course, we need to make uh, our steps. And this is an area where the UK, I think, can play a, a real role because we have the expertise in exactly these uh, areas uh, through our involvement in Galileo and, of course, in communications. And whilst we're not, as the UK, going to be the major driver and investor in lunar exploration, you know, this is a, 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 an infrastructure service that we can provide. Not only can, we, can it be useful, but we can offer it as a commercial service. And that's, I think, something the UK has always been very good is, is in commercialising uh, space. So Lunar Pathfinder is the first step in this direction. We're going to have an, uh, it's an experimental commercial mission. So we're going to provide a satellite which will provide commercial communication services and it will transport small payloads to the to lunar orbit and, and later down onto the surface. And it will provide those communications and later the navigation services back. So uh, shall we say smaller players can uh, not have to worry about having very large communication systems in order to be able to get, retrieve their data from the surface of the moon. Fantastic. And when's it due to launch? 
uh, all goes well. It'll be early 2023, so not very long. And uh, this is a collaborative project between obviously uh, SSTL in the UK but uh, and ESA, but also by NASA. NASA are providing uh, launch services in return for access to some of the, uh, the data uh, and communications uh, capacity. And ESA are essentially forward buying the communications capacity from SSTL to allow us to fund the satellite. So this is not only an interesting technological step, it's also rather it's a new model of how of ESA procuring commercial services you know, in, in, in a rather novel way, which it hasn't done before. So hopefully this may be a model, not just for this, but perhaps even for some future science missions. Absolutely fascinating. I want to pull you back from the excitement of the moon to the slightly more tricky state of politics, actually. The the, the second pillar of the UK space strategy is about international collaboration. And you often get the impression, at least from the outside, that there's a lot of politics in space and and it's not a fully open global market. Uh, I'm interested if you think that that statement's still true or not. But the, I guess the question is, what are the opportunities for UK space technologies outside of Europe? And to what extent does that depend on politics and government actions? I, I think the short answer is it depends very greatly on politics because it's sort of inevitable, I suppose. We have you know, different cultures and, and, and different forms of government and different approaches around the world have different interests and ambitions and aspirations. And so, you know, politics inevitably plays a, a significant role in that. Now, when we're working with Europe uh, from the UK, I'm talking, you know, when the UK works with Europe in space, I think I think there's a, a pretty clear common understanding and common objectives and everything else. When we work with the US, it's, it's similar, although sometimes we are separated by a common language, I think. And again, you know, perhaps the, the, the approaches they take are a little bit more high contrast, shall we say. But when we travel then towards the east, uh, things get you know a lot more uh, uh, complicated uh, when we go to you know, the Middle East, into India, further uh, afield, uh, into Asia, China, Japan. Perhaps we have uh, quite a, a, a good common understanding, but China perhaps is you know an example of one of the extremes of where you know there is a very large and uh, very capable space uh, industry uh, and science base in China where we could benefit enormously from cooperating but the politics makes that quite tricky and uh, I think you know the opportunities that we face from the UK is that we're sort of sitting in the middle Europe is sitting in the middle between west and east and so we have the opportunity to perhaps act as a bit of a bridge and with very careful uh, and, and, and knowledgeable sort of control, so to speak, you know, how we handle it. I think engaging both East and West is, uh, is a real opportunity for us. We shouldn't ignore the fact that India and China are growing very rapidly in terms of their space capabilities. And if we ignore that, uh, you know, it, it, it's not to our benefit. We, we, we need obviously to engage uh, in, in, a, in a way where we feel comfortable, but by ignoring it, I think we would be very short-sighted because it offers real opportunities to achieve more than we could do individually and uh, create actually good value for our investments in in space but politically it is very tricky very interesting and uh, it's one of those areas where i i think there's quite a lot of work that's done in the background 
one of the other pillars in the space strategy is about developing resilient space capabilities and services. What are the kind of issues here and, and what needs to be done? There's many aspects to resilience because I think there is, I suppose you can look at it in, in, in the following way. You know, there's resilience in terms of the architecture of our space to make sure that we've designed it correctly and we don't find that we've built in something which is is going to to unexpected behave unexpectedly and 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 mean that our reliance on space is is um, hampered there's then the natural interferences that can occur through space radiation effects through geomagnetic storms which might interfere with our space infrastructure and then there's the you know, regrettable opportunities for malign interference where it may be by cyber or by more direct means. So you know, there, there are vulnerabilities from all of those directions. And of course, at the, we are now utterly dependent on space for our everyday lives. And so building in resilience is really critical, but it's got to be resilience that takes account of these different vulnerabilities. And therefore, the solution to that resilience is probably going to be different in each case. Cyber is one which, of course, is, is, is you know, very much top of our um, attention at the moment. But it is something which is under our control to some extent to be able to solve geomagnetic upsets. And you know, there are some very major upsets once a century or thereabouts would be something which is outside of our ability to control it. And we need to make sure that we have fallback capabilities so that in the event of a, a natural event like that, you know, we can fall back to, to capabilities that, that maintain our, our standard of life. But it is quite concerning when you consider how vulnerable we are. And it was only just recently that uh, I think it was Facebook you know, lost their internet capability and, and the world was up in arms. Now that really doesn't much matter to be honest, but if you imagine that happening where it affects our utilities, it affects our traffic, it affects all communications, financial transactions and, and everything else, that would be a great deal more serious. And so it's essential that we have resilience and that we invest in that resilience. And of course, like all insurance, you don't want to pay the premium until something happens and you want to make a claim. And I think it's the same with insure, with, with uh, this type of resilience. We need to invest in it because one day we might well need it, even if we don't need that capability just at the present. One of the issues that comes out of what you said, and more generally actually in space policy, is that it does cut across a number of different areas within government. So obviously you have research and development, you have the business department supporting industry, but you do have transport, you do have the Ministry of Defence, you do have DEFRA when it comes to earth observation and so on and so on. Is the UK as joined up as it needs to be to deliver the space strategy and to, to deliver the kind of resilience you've been talking about? I think if you'd asked that question perhaps only five years ago, the answer would be a, a resounding no. Of course, you know there are pockets of, of coordination. If, I, if uh, five years ago one would have seen the pockets of coordination, but in general, the answer would have been no, because I think many departments perhaps weren't really fully aware of the source of the data that they were using that was coming from space. They just had the data. They didn't really much bother where it came from. But fortunately, I think in, in, in the last five years or thereabouts, 
there's been a growing awareness of how, first of all, government is dependent on space in many different strands, but also how departments benefit from sharing that data and having a, a, jo a joined up approach to the acquisition and the interpretation of data and the extraction of knowledge from that data to so that you know actions can be hopefully sensibly taken. So I think there's been a significant advance in the last few years. There's clearly a way to go, but I think the recently announced space strategy is a very important step in establishing a framework so the, that joined up approach now has, has something to, to sort of shape it. And I think that we will see from this a, a greatly improved joined up approach. We're seeing it already. It's got a little way to go, but the fact that the space strategies is really going to help accelerate it. So we're coming to the end of our time and uh, having just asked you to look backwards, let me ask you to look forwards five years. If things go well, if the government's able to deliver on the things in the UK space strategy, how will that improve and affect SSTL and your business? Where could, where could you get to in five years time? I think that the space strategy establishes the importance of space in a number of key themes for the UK. And first of all, it means that assuming that the strategy turns into a tactical move uh, and, and doesn't just sit on the shelf, so to speak, it should stimulate what we haven't had before in the UK, which is an internal space market. So for industry, and this is purely looking at it, let's say from the selfish point of view of industry, it will create a, an internal space market in the UK, which previously with probably one exception of, of, of military comms, really did not exist. And so hopefully that will stimulate new programs. Uh, it will enhance our participation in ESA, and we will have sovereign programs, whether they be for civil or defence, for technology demonstration and new services. And then I think that will bring together the manufacturing uh, capabilities of the UK for space, and the space applications and provide uh, an internal market which will start to stimulate that and, and strengthen our capabilities and that will make us more competitive in the export market. I think one of the, one of the real opportunities that's coming up is in, in, in an area which I've taken interest in recently, uh, which is in space robotics. And, and that's something where I think within the, the space strategy, there's an opportunity for the UK to, to take a real lead in, the, uh, in, you know, in this coming decade. Fantastic. Well, let's see how the next few years goes. Uh, the space strategy is available on the government website. Uh, that's all we have time for today. But Sir Martin Sweeting, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure, Gavin. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Professor Sir Martin Sweeting, founder and executive chairman of Surrey Satellite Technology Limited. We've been discussing the government's recently published space strategy, and there's a link to that strategy on the podcast page of our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Also on our website are details of all our events, all our blogs, and all previous editions of this podcast. Next week, we're discussing science advice in the UK. 
A new report has been published on that in the last few weeks, and my guests will be the authors of that report. Until then, goodbye.